book of Proverbs, chapter 11, Sunday night through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, currently in the book of Proverbs. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. Just wave and get their attention. I'll be happy to get a Bible into your hands tonight so you can follow along. And then please, as always, if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you um, tonight. We pick things up in chapter 11, verse 23. The desire of the righteous is only good, but the expectation of the wicked is wrath. This proverb basically communicates the importance of having worthy goals in life. Make sure that if we, uh, if we get what we're seeking in life, that we're seeking the right things. And very often we will uh, get what we seek in life, whether we're seeking good or whether we're seeking trouble. And uh, so the importance of worthy goals. And uh, you seek good. You're going to get it. The wicked seek for evil, and they're going to get it in the form of wrath or in the form of judgment. Then in verses 24 through 26, those verses are all an encouragement, these Proverbs, to generosity. There is one who scatters, and the idea is of a person who is generous with their resources. There's one who scatters. You think about seed being cast in those days, and here's someone who is generous with their material resources. And yet, as much as they scatter, uh, they yet increase more. And you say, that's impossible. How can a person increase more when they're scattering, when they're giving away? And the only explanation for it is that God makes sure that they have more. He blesses the generous person. And uh, so God is involved. He rewards generous people. But then he goes on to say, And there is one who withholds more than is right, but it leads to poverty. And so the stingy person, you would think, they would be the ones that amass, you know, great amounts of wealth, or they're the ones that get ahead by being stingy. And God, who watches all of all of the people in the world all at the same time, says, no, it doesn't operate that way because I'm at work in human life and human history. And the generous person is the one who increases more. The stingy person, their world gets smaller and smaller and smaller, as does uh, their resources. Verse 25, the generous soul will be made Rich And he who waters will also be watered himself. And so if a person looks and says to God, God, I want to be one of your channels of your resources to people in need. And I ask that uh, and the, there's a gift of giving in the Bible. People, oh, please keep that away from me, Lord. Barely getting by with what I'm making, you know. But there is a gift of giving in the Bible. And it's a spiritual gift. One of the great things about having that gift is that God then channels resources through your life into other people. You say, how is that a blessing? Well, since you are the channel through which the blessings are going, he is always going to supply the channel with blessings. And so a person who is a generous person, God is going to make sure that that person is always taken care of um, in order that he can continue to have his needs meet, met her needs met, in order to then be a blessing 
to other people. And so uh, God will always meet the needs of his channels. And you don't have to necessarily have a gift of giving. Anybody that says, Lord, I, I want you to just run resources through me to other people. Put it on my heart. Bring things my way. Get them in the right hands. I want that to happen. That kind of a person is going to be a person who waters, and as a result, God is, uh, that person is going to be watered by God himself. And then verse um, 26, uh, the people will curse him who withholds grain, uh, but blessing will be on the head of him who sells it. And so... Um, this is the person who uses a crisis in order to enrich themselves. And so here is a man in that ancient culture, what would be more valuable than grain at a time of famine or something. He has bought up the grain of his village or his region, and then a famine comes in, and he looks at it and goes, wow, I am going to make a fortune off of this because I'm going to quadruple the price here because nobody else has any grain, and I'm going to make money off of this even though 90% of the people will not be able to afford grain. And so people take advantage of the crisis, and that happens all of the time. And most often in our day, it's when there's like a spike out of OPEC and the gas prices go up or they're fluctuating every day. And usually when there's a, a spike, now we're just used to the spikes. I go to get gas, I'm just like you. And I go over to Costco or wherever and you look at it and, and there's a 25 cent fluctuation every time. <laughs> you know, we're just... 20. Well, <laughs> I remember when gas was 25 cents a gallon. And uh, some of you remember when it was cheaper still than that. But we get used to that. But you'll always read the thing where here the gas gets short. There's some kind of a hurricane maybe or something that closes down the refineries or something. And here's the neighborhood gas station owner. And he just jacks the price up and he makes a fortune. But what does he lose? He loses his reputation. So, yeah, you made the money. But your name is mud in the neighborhood. And it's not uh, worth that. So the people will curse him who withholds gains, uses money becomes the whole um, uh, bottom line of how they conduct themselves in a crisis. But blessing will be on the head of him who sells it. In other words, they, they're going to do uh, the right thing in that situation. Look at a bigger picture than just how much money can I make here to realize people have needs. I'm a part of this community and and uh, and so that person's reputation is going to be gold when people saw in the moment of crisis mm, they resisted worshiping at the altar of mammon but instead honored the Lord. Verse 27, He who earnestly seeks good finds favor, but trouble will come to him who seeks evil. So it's a package deal. The person who earnestly seeks good, he's going to enjoy the respect of other people. That's the way that it is, no matter how goofy the country is or the world or how much evil is growing or all, there still is a general respect of, of people towards the person that earnestly seeks good. And the person who seeks uh, evil for other people, they'll have trouble come upon themselves. Verse 28, he who trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish 
like foliage. And so uh, to have money, there's nothing wrong with be, uh, having money, nothing wrong with being wealthy, uh, nothing wrong with that at all. What the Bible condemns is trusting in money because money will always fail. Um, there's no amount of money in the world that is a big enough hedge against what could happen to any of us tomorrow in this world to wipe it out. So whether it's $500 in a piggy bank or $25 in a piggy bank or $25 million in Swiss bank accounts or whatever it might be, this world and the world has always been this way. It's so volatile that there is no security to be found in trusting in riches. Only God is bigger than the things that we face uh, in life. Only God is is the one that um, will never, ever uh, fail us. And so nothing wrong with having money. We just don't want to trust in it because it will fail us. If not in this life, it will certainly fail us uh, at the time of death. We won't take it with us. It's just like the one man said to another as they saw a hearse going by on the street. How much did he leave? Was it all of it? Hmm. So we get separated from our riches sooner or later. And when it goes on and says, but the righteous will flourish like foliage and uh, green foliage, you know, growing on a bush or on a tree. And so security, this psalmist uh, proverb is telling us, is not found in money, but it's found in a righteous life, knowing that I am right with God. If you're able to sit here tonight as a Christian and say, you know, in terms of the decision-making in my life and in terms of where I am in life and how I'm conducting myself in life, I know that I am right with God. I have his peace. I've sought him. I have his peace that I'm right in his will. Then that you're the most secure person in the whole world. There is no more secure place uh, in life than to know that I am right uh, with the Lord and in the middle of his will for my life. And that proverb is one that, boy, we've just got to be reminded of all of the time, don't we, uh, where true security is found and where it isn't found. You never see a commercial come on the television, do you? Or say, I mean, there's so many things about this finance and that, and they get all of these actors and actresses that, People used to know a million years ago, and now they're trying to sell something, and you know they're doing it not because the product's any good, but they ran out of money. And uh, so they have some name and some recognition and that kind of thing, and um, all of these things. You never see a commercial come on and say, listen, are you right with God and right in the middle of his will? Then you're secure. Disregard all other commercials that you'll see in the course of this movie. Verse 29. He who troubles his own house will inherit the wind. In other words, he'll end up with nothing, disinherited. So this is the black sheep of the family where they've just caused nothing but problems for the parents or the patriarchs in the family or the matriarch of the family. And it's a good way to get disinherited. And the fool will be a servant to the wise of heart. And so the one will be disinherited and the fool will always lose out in life to the man who is wise of heart. Verse 30, the fruit of the righteous 
is a tree of life. In other words, so you see here is a human life is being likened to like a fruit tree, let's say an apple tree for our purposes. And when you come to that apple tree and there's the fruit that you're able to partake of, a person is rich for coming into contact with that particular tree. And so a human life is being likened to that where a person comes away from a contact with us, a conversation with us, uh, being enriched by virtue uh, of that uh, of that contact, coming in, into contact with, with our godly character. And he who wins souls is wise. That's always a manifestation of a wise person, a person that has a concern for the souls, the eternal destiny uh, of people. That's the winning souls is the very best use of a person's life. Verse 31, if the righteous will be recompensed on the earth, how much more the ungodly and the sinner. That's an interesting proverb. And basically what it's saying is that if even righteous people, even godly people, are recompensed in this life for our misdeeds. Think about Moses because he struck the rock a second time in the wilderness. He wasn't able to go into the promised land. We saw David bore the consequences of his sin. God chastens, and, uh, and there's a recompense even when God's people um, uh, sin. And so if even righteous people are uh, recompensed for the, our misdeeds, and we are, then how much more will the ungodly and the sinner reap what they have sown. Peter puts it this way in his first epistle. He said, for the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, then what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel? So as surely as God chastens his children. How many of you know that God chastens his children? Yes, we know that for a fact. So as surely as God chastens his children, he will also one day judge the wicked. Chapter 12, verse 1. Whoever loves instruction loves knowledge, but he who hates correction is stupid. The S word is in the Bible. It's our Christian home, you know. That's the S word in a Christian home. One of the kids calling the other kids stupid. We don't do that in the house, right? But this proverb, God uses the word stupid. It means brutish. It means to live like an animal. But it literally means stupid. And God uses the word stupid because stupid exists in the world. He watches it all day, every day. Let's not pretend that it's not there. That we don't act stupid and that people don't act stupid and that stupid isn't a reality. Oh, no, we don't say that word. It's going on all the time. So... The Bible uses the word. And basically this proverb tells us, how else are we going to get knowledge except through instruction? A person's only going to become knowledgeable about any subject if we're willing to be instructed by those who know something more about that subject than we know about it. So uh, if a person is unwilling to be corrected, Regarding what we're doing wrong, Solomon says, then you're stupid and you will remain stupid. 
So a person is either going to be teachable in life or they're going to be stupid, 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 stupid. A person will either be teachable in life, they will realize they don't know everything about in life, and they will learn from people who know more about them. And trust me, in any field in life, there are people that know more. There, there are people that know more about uh, everything uh, that I know about. They know more about that subject than me. And that's why a Christian should always be a lifelong learner. And if a person isn't continuing to learn and isn't continuing to grow, then we're just going to be uh, stupid. Did I say stupid enough there So to make the point there at all? Stupid is as stupid does or whatever the saying is on that. Verse 2, a good man obtains favor from the Lord, but a man of wicked intentions... God will condemn. And I like this verse because basically what God is communicating is that he's active in human affairs. He is very, very active in this world on an individual level. That's how active he is. This is one of the marvels. I wake up in in the morning or I'm going through the day and I realize how many people are on the earth now. I stopped at five point whatever billion, what is it, seven billion now or something now. He's trying to, the Holy Spirit is working to bring every single one of those people every single day to Christ. He knows everything about everyone. I mean, he is so engaged in this world. And I know he's engaged geopolitically and all of these other things that are going on and history is moving. It's, it is his story and it is moving to his God-appointed end. But I think probably in his eyes the most significant thing that he he does every day is his involvement in individual lives. Because the United States of America is not going into eternity. Neither is Russia or England uh, or Argentina or any other country you want to name. We are eternal. There's two eternal things in this world and in this room. That is individual human beings and the Bible, God's Word that we hold on our lap. So that's his concern. He is engaged with this world on an individual uh, level, active in human affairs, and he has determined that he's going to bless the good man, and he has determined that the wicked man will fail, and they will. Verse 3, a man is not established by wickedness, but the root of the righteous cannot be um, moved. And so lives that are dominated by wickedness, they have no stability. So if you're, if you're a person who prizes stability, peace, continuity in a life, you don't want to be a wicked person because those people don't know anything about that, uh, not one day of their life. And he says the life of the righteous person is stable because our roots go down into God. God is rock solid, and he is able to take us through all of the storms of life. It's interesting that Jesus, when he gets to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and he talks about those who hear his sayings and do them. He likens them to a person who builds their house on a rock. The storms came, and uh, great storms come against that house. But it stands because it's founded on the rock, on God's Word and on the Lord. And the foolish man builds his house upon the sand. The storms come in. Greater the storms and the wind and the house falls. Great is the collapse uh, of the house. And so when we build our lives on the things of the Lord, here is the imagery used of a root going down into deep into the soil, into something solid. We are in. Uh, we have a foundation that's able to withstand the storms of life.
And we need to believe that about any storm that we're in tonight. You'll outlive the storm. You'll make it. Sometimes it can feel like it's that close. Lord, I feel so bad for you that my life is going to disprove your promise that every temptation is common to man (laughs) and that with the temptation you're either going to give me the grace to stand or a way of escape and I don't have a way of escape and I don't sense that I have the grace to withstand. And yet two days later, two weeks later, two months later, two years later, there you are. Why? The grace of God. The grace of God. You will make it because God's reputation is bound up in us and because he loves us. Verse 4, an excellent wife is the crown of her husband. Now, my wife is here tonight. Honey, would you please take a stand on this there? Don't you get in here. And then, and then with all sincerity, then the second part, I don't know anything about this, but... But it, apparently it's true. I know, gentlemen, you don't know either, but we've got, it's in the Bible, we've got to say it. But she, and this is speaking of a wife who causes shame, is like rottenness in his bone. Rottenness. Rottenness. It's quite a word, isn't it? You don't just hear rotten anymore, do you? You hear the Holy Spirit. An excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who causes shame is like rottenness. In his bones, in other words, it's a it's a deep uh, deep effect upon his life. And so, this is a, a proverb that speaks to the influence of the wife upon a husband for good or for bad. And uh, there is no more influential uh, relationship in life for a husband than than the wife. And I think that next to having the Lord Himself to have. An excellent wife is the very best thing that a man can have. Better than a lab. (laughs) Or a cocker spaniel. Very best thing. A dog's or man's best friend, not quite. And so, talking this when it talks about the fact that an excellent wife is the crown of her husband, it talks about her godly character, her godly life, makes her husband proud of her. And her character and reputation brings honor uh, to the husband. And then conversely, it speaks about being married to a wife who brings shame or humiliation um, to the husband. And here we should really kind of erase the marker board in terms of kidding around a little bit uh, because the Bible's pretty serious about this. And if you're a wife that is this kind of a wife, this is a very serious uh, proverb, and it's meant to be... Um, taken quite seriously. And so here is a, a, a wife who brings shame and humiliation to her husband. In other words, he's just, she is just a constant source of emotional and mental distress for him. That's about the worst thing that can happen to a man is for him to be married. She brings rottenness to his bones, and, and that is she brings deep and terrible pain uh, into his life. The same thing is true, I think, uh, conversely related to a husband and a wife. It's a big deal to make a commitment and to marry another human being. It really is, for better, for worse, rich or poor. And, uh, and to say, 
I am marrying you, you are marrying me, and um, I'm supposed to be the only husband you ever have apart from death or infidelity, and, and, and I'm the only wife that you're supposed to have for that same purposes. And to take a person and make that kind of a commitment with another human being is just a massive responsibility. And every one of us should spend our lives just making that relationship the greatest blessing that it can be for that other person. And that's the way to look at marriage. And that's the responsible way. So I'm going to make them feel like they're the most blessed person in the world and in the greatest marriage that they could be in. Um, after all, they were willing to marry me. Why shouldn't I? <laughs> and, uh, and it's true. Um, how we're affected by our spouses uh, for good or for bad, and we want to be an influence for good. Verse 5, the thoughts of the righteous are right, but the counsels of the wicked are deceitful. In other words, what we really are is what we are on the inside and not what we are uh, on the outside, uh, what we are in terms of our thoughts and our counsels. Verse 6, the words of the wicked are lie in wait for blood, but the mouth of the upright will deliver them. And so the upright person is marked in uh, human history and in life as being a person who rescues people from the wicked and from the violent. The famous old saying, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. There's an awful lot of truth uh, in that. And uh, so here's the encouragement for the upright, the righteous, godly, to stand up, make a stand. Uh, for those that are victims of the wicked so that wicked can't ultimately uh, prevail. Verse 7, the wicked are overthrown and are no more. And the idea is they're overthrown and are no more when justice enters into uh, their situation and catches up with them. But the house of the righteous will stand. In other words, a righteous person doesn't fear justice. When you're going down the highway and the speed limit is 65 and you see a CHP um, in your mirror and you're doing 65, it's like... Oh, man. Got to deal with pride now. Look at this. Hey. Hi, officer. God bless you. I mean, there's no anxiety at all or anything like that. There was until you looked down and saw 65. Now, if you're doing 82, you see a CHP. Nobody should ever be doing 82. But you look down there and you see him, and all of a sudden, every, you're anxious uh, related to all of that. And so... Uh, the uh, person that lives righteously, and I use driving, but it fits everywhere in life, is, is, uh, has no fear of you know, being arrested or being overthrown or uh, you know, justice catching up uh, to them. The wicked, they live in a constant fear of uh, law enforcement, of courtrooms, of jail, of all of these kind of things, and the righteous don't have any of those kind of fears in our life as law-abiding citizens. So again, you look and you see like the bad guys are made the heroes in the TV show or in the movie or in the song or whatever like that. And God says, no, they live in fear all the time because they know, they know the hunt is on and they are the hunted. 
Um, and, and yet, here's the righteous person, never has to think about those things. Well, that's a lot to have offloaded off of our lives. Verse 9, better is one who is slighted, that is, lightly esteemed by other people, but who has a servant, than he who honors himself, but not only lacks a servant, but he lacks bread. And here the idea is it's better to be a nobody in the eyes of the world, but you're living a kind of a simple but prosperous life than to be a person who's like a big shot and is giving the appearance of being prosperous and wealthy and all, and yet when they go home uh, behind the facade, they can't even put food on the table. We might put it this way. It's better to own a Honda Civic than to be making seven years' worth of payments on a Lexus SUV. Nothing wrong with SUV on that, but here's something you own. We look and we see, okay, this person is this on the basis of what they're driving. We don't know that they own that or where they live or all these different kinds. You don't know a book, can't tell a book by its cover. And here's a person who may be driving this, they may be living here, they may be all of this, and they may be way more prosperous. Than, than the others who are giving the appearance of being wealthy uh, and they're not. I remember I was in an airport one time and I was kind of looking through, you know, what the bestsellers were and that kind of thing or the new books or whatever. And they had a book called The Millionaire Next Door. So I, I went, as soon as I got home, I went and said hi to both my neighbors and um, gave them my Christmas list. But it was it was talking about the fact that how... The, the, the average millionaire in the United States of America isn't like in a music video, you know, where you think, oh, that's an obviously wealthy person or something. I mean, they put their lunch, the, the bologna sandwich in a brown bag, and they go to work, and, that, and that's how they end up, you know, sometimes accumulating this, uh, the kind of resources because they're frugal and wise. But anyway, uh, the, the, the whole idea here is that of appearances. It can look one way, better to own this and, and be thought of as a nobody by the rest of the world than to be thought of as somebody. And, and behind the scenes, you're, you can't even put uh, uh, a bowl of pasta in front of you at the end of the day. Verse 10, the righteous man regards the life of his animal. So a righteous man, that character is going to translate not only to other people, not only to his property, but also to animals. But the tender mercies of the wicked are cruel. And so the quality of of a man is revealed in his treatment of his animals, especially those that are dependent upon him. And, um, And the Bible, all through the Old Testament, there are laws and the law of Moses about um, the proper treatment of animals. So to treat animals properly and humanely is to be like God. God is concerned uh, about animals. And, uh, and so the, the, uh, what's reflected even in how we treat our pets or how we treat uh, animals in general. And so uh, the wicked man is incapable of a tender heart, period, but toward animals as well. So I remember one time... I was watching some kind of a show years ago, and it was talking about, um, I think it might have been um, Jeffrey Dahmer's story. You say, why in the world would you watch that, you know? I have no good answer. Um, But, you know, he professed Christ, and they kind of went through the whole thing, and so I was interested in 
where did this, all of this go in terms of God's grace? At least that's my story. And um, but with so they mentioned in the show with so many of these people that are get way way out there, the f- earliest indication of of deep deep trouble in a person's life is cruelty toward animals. And uh, so the, the people that study this kind of thing, when they see that in a very young person, they're very alarmed. And uh, uh, so a lot is already revealing itself on how we treat animals. Um, verse 11, he who tills the land will be satisfied with bread, but he who loves frivolity is devoid of wisdom. So here we have another proverb that is uh, praising hard work. The person that works hard, they're going to have their needs in life are going to be uh, supplied. Or the person that just wants to have fun and party and and all of those kind of things at the expense of hard work, that person lacks understanding. Uh, the proverb tells us, in other words, they're not very smart. And the proverb's essentially saying not only will they end up with an empty cupboard, but they've also got an empty noggin if they haven't figured out the fact that um, that partying and all of that kind of stuff to the neglect of hard work is not going to put food on the table. Hard work puts food on the table. And some people learn that kind of slowly in their early adult life. But sooner or later, everybody has to learn it, where you say, okay, I've got to cut this out in my life because nobody's going to give me a free lunch ticket here. And, uh, yeah, it's fun to the flesh to do all of these things for sin is pleasurable for a season, but I'm about starving to death. And then people realize that, um, it isn't such a great uh, great way to live and then come to appreciate the importance of, of hard work. Verse 12, the wicked covet the catch of evil man, men. In other words, what they steal from other people. The wicked look at what evil men steal from other people and they covet that. But the root of the righteous yields fruit. And so this speaks of um, people who are always attracted to get rich quick kind of um, uh, schemes and that kind of thing. That's, what's the easiest way to get some money, even if it means crime as opposed to a, a hard work? But the proverb tells us it's a, a dead end. Um, ending up with resources or wealth by virtue of hard work, it's a slower way than a life of crime, but, it, and, but it's steady. It, it's slow and steady, and you end up having what you have, and, and, and it's there. And uh, the life of crime, the easy come, easy go, the money comes and goes and all. But even more importantly is what we learn um, in working hard in order to earn money. We learn the value of money. That's why um, sometimes that's why sometimes you get these entry-level jobs and in life where it's like, okay, these are where people sometimes won't make a career in this living, but this is where they get their first job. And, and in that place where sometimes it's the first time you're going to pay federal taxes, state taxes, disability, Social Security, and the person realizes, wow, look how hard I worked for this, and then look how much got taken out. Then they join the Tea Party, and they live happily ever after. <laughs> no, but you realize you work hard for that, 
and and then you realize this is valuable. This represents hours of my life when I then go spend it on this or spend it on that. And good characters being developed in our life as a result of that. I remember. Um, no, I'm not going to tell you. No, I won't. No, I won't do it. Though, no, though, Mo- though Moses and Samuel were to appear in the room, I'm not going to tell you. It would be a total waste of time. So, it wouldn't be a waste of time, actually. It's a very good illustration, but we'll go on to verse 13. The wicked is ensnared by the transgression of his lips. And so the wicked man, transgression of lips is lying. So the wicked man is ultimately caught in his lies because it takes a good memory to keep all those lies in line. And, and so he's ultimately ensnared by the transgressions of his lips, but the righteous will come through trouble. And so ultimately the lies, you can't keep them all together. It all starts to unravel. This person then finds this inconsistency, this person, and a whole person's whole life uh, falls, uh, falls apart. And because the righteous don't engage in lying, they're spared having to worry about, did I tell, what story did I say over here? Who did I tell these facts to? And then every time I see them, I've got to make sure that I, I, what I did tell them and I didn't tell them and all, oh my, emotionally, mentally, you'd be spent. And uh, so it's no way, uh, to live a life entangled with lies. Better just to be simple in that regard. Verse 14, a man will be satisfied by the good fruit of his mouth. In other words, his words. And the recompense of a man's hands will be rendered to him. And so good speech, good behavior, generally rewarded uh, in life. Verse 15, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes. But he who heeds counsel is wise. And so here's the man who thinks he knows everything, can never be wrong. The Bible says that person is a fool. Of course, none of us knows everything. None of us knows everything about even one thing in life. And and so... um, let alone everything in life. And so the importance of, of not being afraid to say, I'm wrong or I, I, uh, you know, I don't know everything. Please enlighten me related to the situation that I'm in and help me out. And a person that won't take that kind of instruction is a fool. And then, but he who hi, uh, heeds counsel is wise. The wise man learns from other people. I don't think there's a person that I run into in life that I don't learn something from. And um, it's always uh, nice that way. Sometimes what I learn is what not to do. But everybody's a walking advertisement of some life lesson that their whole life is there for everyone to read if we're willing to read it. And uh, it's a wise person that can learn a little something from everyone, even if it's what not to do. Verse 16, a fool's wrath is known at once. And so this talks about uh, the hot-headed person, the short-tempered uh, person. 
And when they get annoyed or somebody crosses them, boy, they show it immediately as explosive kind of uh, uh, angry. How could you be so stupid? And don't you have any sense? Let me show you how you do that. And they'll be quick to say something that words that really, really cut deep into another person's life. Even if you're older, but especially when a person is younger and doesn't quite have the ability to say, I'm just going to kind of slough that off. Um, this fool's wrath is known at once, but the prudent man covers shame. It's the wise man who's in a situation where you look and go, oh. But you keep it inside, you make it a teachable moment, and you don't shame the person any more than there are, especially when the person already knows they've done wrong, the consequences are as big as can be right in front of them. Now there's no need to rub their nose in it or to make them feel ashamed over what's happened. And sometimes a person can come in and say, well, you know, um, I made a mistake once too. Or, you know, it's not the end of the world. And I'll tell you, that person, whether they're 60 years old, and I think it's even more powerful in a younger person's life when a great mistake is responded to in that way, I'll tell you, they'll, um, they'll praise your name all the days of their life because I know you could just shame them up one side and down the other. They already feel it. But you allow them to kind of save face in the situation. There are some people that once the mistake is made, I mean, they're not going to, they won't let you save your dignity or your face at all in the situation. And it's a great mistake. It's certainly not like Christ. The Bible says concerning Jesus, he said um, that a bruised reed he will not break and a smoking flax he will not quench. So when a person's in that vulnerable kind of a position, he treats them very carefully And he treats them very, very gently. Verse 17, he who speaks truth declares righteousness, but a false witness deceit. And here the context is a courtroom. And so the righteous tell the truth and the unrighteous deliberately lies uh, in a court of law. Verse 18, there's one who speaks like the piercings of a sword. Ooh. And some people, and, and thankfully, uh, not too many of them, not, at least not in my life, but um, there's, there's a lot of them there. There can be a lot of them in the apartment complex, or there can be a lot of them in the neighborhood, or a lot of them. There's, just, there's enough of them in life, but I'm glad they're not generally the majority. But when they speak, they speak like the piercings of the sword. Every time they open their mouth, they wound people. They, they hurt people. They damage people with their, with their mouth. And so they're very reckless with their words, and they're unthinking and they're uncaring. And sometimes that can become a real source of pride. Um, I think that if, if you or I are the kind of person where you say, you know, I just tell it like it is. Mm, okay. All right. There's something to be said for that. The Bible says speaking the truth in love. We need, to, we need to speak the truth, but there's a way that it needs to be spoken to properly represent the Lord. And so it needs to be spoken in love. And I have found that whenever I am or I've come into contact with another person who, who is proud of the fact that I just tell it like it is, that um, usually that person is... Um, by virtue of the pride, uh, they're, 
they're not clothing it in love. They are being uh, pretty reckless with their words and doing a lot of damage, but they're kind of uh, protecting themselves from looking at it and saying, boy, I, I ought to do better than, than that by saying, no, listen, I just, I just tell it like it is, and if you want to know the truth, then come to me. But it isn't just the truth. It's how things are said uh, by the righteous person. He says that the tongue of the wise promotes health, and so the tongue of the wise has the opposite effect. And so that's the person who says, all right, you know, I'm going to need to say something hard in this situation I am going to need to say something difficult for this person to hear, and, um, but I'm, I want to say it in the right way so that it has a healing effect upon their lives and, and an encouragement in their lives. Verse 19, the truthful lip shall be established forever, but a lying tongue is but for a moment. And so um, Shakespeare wrote, truth will out, and uh, we have a way of just saying the truth will become known uh, eventually. And so honesty is the best policy. So many sayings that we have within our culture that come right out of the book of Proverbs and all. And, and so uh, the truthful lip will be established forever. That's what's going to win out ultimately in any situation. But the lying tongue is but for a moment. We lie, and when a person lies, all we're doing is buying ourselves a little bit of time before we get exposed. And so, um, and, but it never delays the inevitable and that exposure is coming. Verse uh, 20, deceit is in the heart of those who devise evil, but counselors of peace have joy. And so the heart of the wicked is filled with deceit. Joy fills the heart of those who pursue uh, peace. 21, no grave trouble will overtake the righteous, but the wicked shall be filled with evil. And so a righteous life protects us, in other words, from the trouble that comes upon the wicked. Uh, righteousness does not protect us from all trouble in life because there's persecution and trouble that comes to us just for being righteous or for being Christians. But we do not know the trouble that comes upon a person for being uh, wicked. Verse 22, lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who deal truthfully are his delight. God hates lying. That's something that needs to be said, doesn't it? You know, one of the things that's so frustrating to me about politics, there's a lot of things that are frustrating to me about politics. I don't say that all politicians are this way, but um, and why I engage in a significant weaning from uh, staying in, uh, up to date on this kind of stuff is you see how a politician learns how to lie and how to phrase things, and they are, it's just out and out lies. And you sit there and you watch the show or the interview and you say, they're absolutely lying. That, that sentence, that paragraph, that five minutes was so carefully choreographed to mislead and to cause the American public to believe in a lie. And so lying has just become a part of the culture, even from 
kind of these halls of power where there should be um, righteousness and truthfulness should be exalted and exampled, and it isn't. Then you get into the pop culture, and it's just as bad. And we have to sometimes just take a step back as Christians and to realize that uh, God hates all of it. There's no way that I can properly represent Jesus in a situation um, by lying because he never lied and he doesn't deal in deceit or he doesn't deal in deception. And so it's good for us to realize there are no white lies. <laughs> there are no love lies. I just tell love lies, you know. It's a lie, but, you know, I, I love them and I want, to, I want them to feel good when they leave my presence. Um, half-truth exaggerations where I'm the hero. If you're the hero of every one of your stories... Come on. Come on. You're not the hero of every one of your stories. Oh, only the ones you tell. All right. That I understand very well. But the importance of being honest, not lying in terms of the truth. The prudent man conceals knowledge, but the heart of fools proclaims foolishness. And so... The prudent man, this verse is telling us, doesn't show off everything that he knows in a conversation. He's modest about his learning. And uh, so he could take, there are certain people who have such a capacity for learning. They're so well-educated and, and their life experience is so broad and, and uh, amazing that they could just, they could, there might be, Five people in the entire city that shares the same level of things with them for whom they could have a conversation that's a back and forth. This kind of person can enter into a conversation with people like us generally in this room and we'd get half a sentence out and then they would go on for three hours exhausting everything that they know about that subject and then you try to change the subject and they can do the same thing on another subject. But if a person has that kind of knowledge and they're always showing it off all of the time, then pretty soon they're not, they're going to be in a closet talking to themselves. Who wants to talk to somebody like that that's always showing off everything that they know? So the wise person is the person who loves to be with people, loves to hear other people, realizes that he or she still has something to learn and will learn from sometimes the most unlikely sources of, of other people. And they just like good conversation. And so they will let the conversation go. They will listen to other people and they don't have to have the final say in every, every conversation. And, and they just appreciate people and they like to be around people. On the other hand, this proverb tells us the foolish man says everything uh, to anyone without any discernment at all. I mean, it just, if it's in his mind or on his heart, he, it all just kind of uh, gushes out. He doesn't show any kind of self-control in his speech. He's unable to keep quiet. And that isn't a, a good characteristic to have in life. I think it's always uncomfortable to be in a group of maybe six or eight people and everybody's discussing something. And uh, then the person who is not only the least qualified to chime in on the subject, but they are almost in the negative zone in terms of ignorance on the subject. And 
they feel a need to jump in and dominate it and then go on a rant for 15 minutes. And then when they get done speaking, there's absolute dead silence. Ever been in a situation like that? I've been in a couple of times where I'm, I'm the donkey. And you say, you're hearing this and this and this, and then all of these people know 50 times more about the subject than I do, and I get done, and it's like just dead silence. Nobody wants to touch it. You want to, like, poke it with a stick. What was that that this guy just said there in the middle of the thing? So you learn the hard way on things, but you learn. And, and so the heart of fools proclaims uh, foolishness. We'll stop there. And we'll pick things up in verse 24 next time. I think that'll be in the year 2014. Um, No, it won't be quite that long. But we'll be heading off to Israel here a little bit. And we'll hold that place. And it's always nice to just stop in the middle of a chapter when you're going to stop for a long period of time. And then nobody knows where in the world did we stop. So we'll stop there at verse 24. I'd like the worship team.